January 28th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Janet Best, who's an assistant professor in the math department at Ohio State University. Hi, Janet. Mm-hmm. Around the room, we've got um, Janet's graduate student, Sayanti Banerjee. Hi, Sayanti. Hi. We've got Kelly Suter. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me, I'm your moderator, Salma Karashi. So um, Janet is a mathematical biologist whose work covers a wide range of biological problems. She's looked at how neuronal networks make transitions from one pattern of firing to another in the basal ganglia with our own Charlie Wilson. She's worked out some definitive models of the sleep-wake cycle and also developed a mathematical model of the dopamine system that addresses why symptoms of Parkinson's disease appear only at 80% population loss. Um, Currently, she's been working with our own Kelly Suter, who's here with us today, on modeling the transitioning firing patterns of GNRH neurons at puberty, and and this is the work I think we'll spend the most time on today since the key players are assembled. So, but first, on a very general note, I thought you might uh, say something about the idea that math drives new biological questions, and biology in turn drives the development of new math, since um, that seems to be a theme that we've talked about and you seem to be interested in. Yes, so so, there's a range of of ways to approach math biology, a range of ways to to use math in biology, but the way that, the approach that's natural for me and that, that I feel strongly about is that you have to really, from my point of view, you have to really go after the biology because if you, if you, look a little bit at the biology and you have in mind some mathematical approaches so that you don't... If, if you don't look in the biology so much, if you don't look at the biology to the point that you're driven to particular questions, if you don't go to that point, then you're looking at a little bit of biology and you have in mind these mathematical tools you could apply to it and those will limit your view. You won't see the new mathematical problems because... You will be you will be seeing through the mathematical tools you already know, and so you won't really be making advances in the biology, or really in the math either, because you're you're really applying things that you know. And what we what we find repeatedly is that if you if you look at the biological questions, if you really look at the details of biological questions, really challenging mathematical problems arise that really aren't that interesting. They aren't that natural mathematical. I mean, they, they turn out to be interesting, but they're not really natural mathematical questions. And they're questions that we don't have the math to answer yet, so we have to develop the math to answer them. But you wouldn't have found them if you didn't really go after the biology. So, so that's a long way to say that. Uh, right, that's what. What do you mean, natural mathematical questions? So I understand that, I guess that what you mean by that is a question a mathematician would have logically asked as as a progression from working on some simpler problem to working on a more complicated problem. Or generalizing something, yes. Yes. So so what you mean is that it jerks you out of your regular way of thinking because you have a real life situation and you have to adapt your thinking. You have to come up with not the standard approach to it. Right. So so some of the kinds of questions that come up is um, if you you look at... um, and so mathematicians often look at diffusion questions and, diff- and diffusion rates. But, but sometimes if you have something diffusing around a cell, you have some, some, 
you, know, some, you may have some endocytosis of the chemical into the cell, which is essentially random. And so maybe, maybe you would like to estimate the diffusion rate in the event of these random endocytosis. That's a question, I mean, mathematically, why would you ever ask that? I mean, right? I mean, you know, biologically, it, it, it can be relevant for some experiments. But mathematically, just, there's just no reason you would, you would think to ask that. So how do you deal with all the fact that biology is so, uh, uh, so messy? That's where the fun is. Yeah, well, it's, of course it's messy, but uh, we work with the simplest form of models. Yeah, but to some extent, uh, okay, so obviously I, I can only speak for myself when you ask me anyway, but from my point of view, I guess I tend to f- follow, I tend to go after the biology just sort of trusting that it will lead somewhere. And and then when I when I stumble into a mathematical question that's so interesting that I just can't resist, then I follow that for a while. So, Todd, by messy, you don't mean the actual blood and guts kind of messy. You mean some other kind of messy. What kind of messy do you mean? Well, it's too. It's often too complicated to formalize. If you get too far into the biology, there's a gazillion things going on. How are you going to do anything mathematically to show something to get a handle on it? Uh, and some uh, lots of mathematicians say, "I can't do that." It's just it's, it's crazy. Um, but I think that I mean, I was I always think of it as you you have to wander around in the biology knowing keeping your mathematicians mm. eye, eyeballs out mm. and then you see something and then you step back and then you actually do a math you go back to being a mathematician capturing as much biology as you can mm. but you don't have to pretend to try to capture all of it because otherwise it's hard to function so you, it's really important to decide who you're you are uh, primarily but if you don't go and decide, I'm going to think about it, try to think about this problem as a biologist, you look like exactly like you say, you never see it because you only see everything through a mathematician's eyes. So if you go kind of touristing as a biologist and, but, and see lots of stuff as a mathematician, then you have all this rich stuff to go back and, and work on. Yeah, so let's get more targeted in that realm. So your, your work with Kelly on um, GnRH neurons has... Is, has led to some important questions regarding mixed-mode oscillations. So, so let, first let's talk about what the biological question that you started with is and how you got from there into mixed-mode oscillations, and then we can talk a little bit, hopefully, about mixed-mode oscillations. Uh, let's see. So we, were, we would like to understand, so for these gonadotropin-releasing hormone neurons, which Kelly's been introducing me to for the past few years now, uh, these are really interesting cells that undergo some... They undergo a lot of changes morphologically and and also in terms of activity from you know, from birth through puberty. And so I would like to understand both how the morphological changes uh, affect activity and also what changes are occurring around the time of puberty and, and prepubertal changes that the drive the changes in firing rate which have been observed and and how that interacts with the effective changes in puberty, the changes to causing postal GnRH release. And so with Kelly, previously, a few years ago, we had developed a summer model with Kelly and Carson Roberts. We developed a summer model that had just a few currents matched to Kelly's data. And 
we decided to start by augmenting that model, adding a few channels, uh, adding a couple of channels of potassium delayed rectifier and a, and a SK channel, a uh, small conductance calcium activated potassium channel that had been implicated in the literature as being involved in shaping generation firing activity. And in the course of making these modifications to the model, which is largely carried out by Sayanti, we found that the model exhibited these mixed moment oscillations, this, this mix of small and large amplitude oscillations. And I'm, I had been hearing about and following to some extent some of the, some of the math, mathematical and math neuroscience activity on these and studying mechanisms for this because the mathematical theory is, is being worked on currently for that. And I've been following some of that, but I wasn't really drawn into the fray until until it fell into our lab in this particular model that we were looking at for other reasons. So what are mixed mode? How do you devolve? So it's the idea is to just devolve a complex series of, in this case, um, membrane potential oscillations into components. But if you're looking at neural activity, often the sum may just be spiking. It may just be having action potentials, whether it's tonic firing or burst firing, where it has several action potentials in the period of quiescence, or irregular firing, it may, you know, many cells seem to have just action potentials, just, you know, full amplitude spikes. And it's certainly not the case that all cells also have either sub-threshold oscillations or small amplitude oscillations, much smaller amplitude than the, than the full spike. And it's that mixture, it's, it's, when, it's when a cell has both these full amplitude oscillations and some smaller, either, either sub-threshold or just small amplitude small amplitude oscillations. Those are the MMOs, the mixed mode oscillations. So what other, what other systems have, have these sorts of things been char well characterized in so far? Do we, well characterized. It's not really, in bio it's not really biological. Um, it's a tool not much seen in biology, right? It's more chemistry. So it's, it's, it's been reported more in chemistry. Um, within biology, outside the brain, I haven't, I haven't heard too much, but um, within the brain, in the brainstem, the pre singer, and um, you know, stellate cells and dopaminergic cells and some neuroendocrine cells, and also uh, some pancreatic cells, actually. So why are they interesting? So why are they interesting? A couple of reasons. So, you know, of course, there's always the mathematical questions that this raises, because... And for the mathematical theory, you could you could play around and see what different mechanisms you could come up with mathematically, but, you know, there always would be mechanisms that you would miss if, if that were your only way of exploring. But really, I think what's, for me, what's really interesting about them is it's curious what functional role they may have. What what does it do for the cell to have this, this, this mixture of oscillations? And... So in some cases, it seems like it may have some role, but it, it would be, I would, I would like to understand, I'm, I'm always wondering why cells fire the way that they do, and you know, what what is the role of that? So what do you think some of the functional, at least in the GNRH model system, what do you think some of the functional um, implications are? Well, if indeed these point, are mixed mode so oscillators. It's, so it's really, it's, it's, it's really to really predict, but I'm curious whether, so one of the, one issue that really interests me in, in neuroscience is it seems the, it seems that the, 
you know, the brain has a fair amount of control over, it can regulate how much irregularity there is in some sense. I mean, some, some neuronal systems are, are, are quite regular and others are very irregular. And it seems that, so it seems that there is some ability to regulate how irregular it is. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in how, you know, what is the, what do we gain by having this irregularity? What do these neural systems gain by having this irregularity? And so the possibility that I mean, these generate cells, they do seem to fire irregularly when, when you're having the pustule generate release, these cells seem to be firing irregularly. And so I'm curious why and, and what the mechanisms are, whether it's cinemas or something else. So some of the, some of the regularity, I mean, so which comes first, right? So is it really controlling regularity, or is it making... So one possibility is that it's... You want to make it easy to switch modes, mm -hmm. right? And so you don't want to be stuck in one mode. You want to be able to switch modes back and forth. And if you're in a place where it's easy to switch, and you get some kind of... Uh, you're subject to some kind of fluctuation, then you're in a place where it's irregular. Mm -hmm. um, so you could think of that the regularity is like a, a byproduct of being able to be sensitive to do different things. Sure. Um, or you can think, I want to be in a place so that the regularity, that I actually generate irregularity for irregularity's sake. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, do you have any, is there any way to go after that, that question or to think about which comes first or how, how it's controlled? I mean, might you have different control strategies for... For those two different stories, <laughs> well, the generic neurons have to be really flexible. You uh, sniff a mate, you release GnRH. Someone says boo, you stop releasing GnRH. Someone doesn't feed you, and so that system has to be able to shift between a fairly regular pattern of pulsatility to sustain reproduction to a dead stop very, very quickly. And so I think part of the issue um, that you're crawling around on, and I agree with, is that part of this irregularity makes them flexible, makes them able to switch modes of behavior very, very quickly. And they do, in fact, do that. Um, and they're subjected to an ungodly um, number of environmental and internal cues. And so they have to be flexible. And I think this is their, their mechanism of flexibility and their final output. I don't know if they talk to each other or not, but if they talk to each other even a little bit and they are not irregular, then they're likely to become synchronized or to create traveling waves or some other kind of you know, bogus pattern that probably isn't related to any of those things you just mentioned. And so uh, irregularity is important when the cells are talking to each other, even when they get a common input, even a little tiny bit of common input would synchronize cells that are rhythmic. So I would think that might be a real important reason for cells to be intrinsically irregular. But I'm wondering about some mechanisms, because there are a bunch of different things that we call irregular, so uh, a, a sort of uh, quasi- Periodicity is 
if it gets complicated enough, if the winding number is irrational, it can look like completely irregular, but it's not irregular at all. Mm-hmm. It's actually completely predictable. Mm-hmm. And is that good enough? Is that kind of irregularity good enough? Or, uh, or do you have to have really honest-to-goodness random things? Random things are sometimes hard to actually come up with. Uh, random number generators are famously not random, for example. What do you think? Bad question, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I think we first have to recognize that uh, we have to get past the dogma in this system where people tend to talk about bursting in GNRH neurons when what they really mean is repetitive firing. And when they have these episodes of repetitive firing, it's not a classical bursting behavior. It's a it's a highly irregular firing pattern. So I think it is an irregularity. And um, I'm not sure how they generate that sort of quasi-random pattern. So... Uh, so this gets back to sort of the question of what the role of mathematics is in this. What do you, what do you expect to gain out of the mathematical approach? An answer to the question of how they become irregular? Um, because, you know, maybe you would say, well, I just like poison this ion channel and they become irregular, therefore I know how they're irregular. Is there a better explanation available than I'm, that? I'm more... I'm not so much interested in how they are irregular um, as to why they are irregular. Um, Uh-oh. Hmm? Why meaning the formal cause, the material cause, the end cause, or the process? The end cause. What, what benefit uh-huh. is it to GNRH release to have it dependent on a highly irregular pattern of firing. Because we assumed for years that these neurons would burst like other neurosecretory neurons, and they don't. And so why are they different? Why is their behavior fundamentally different? So Janet, can mathematics answer that question? We, we, can, I mean, we can use mathematics to, to make models that test hypotheses about this. We, since we can't capture all details, we can't necessarily say that our model is 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 what the cell is doing. But we can certainly generate and test some hypotheses about. So one of the things I see mathematical work used for all the time is to illustrate a proposed mechanism. So I think a lot of neurophysiologists do this. They add a little model at the end of their paper in which they illustrate the explanation that they've just offered in the form of a little model that shows that that explanation actually does do what it claims It's sufficient it to do what they claim. Do you think that is a strong or weak use of mathematics? Can you do better than that? So I, don't, I just certainly don't think it's the strongest use, but, but there are a lot of cases where someone makes a verbal argument and doesn't test whether the verbal argument makes any sense or even could work. Mathematically, so and sometimes they don't work when you test them. Yeah, often they don't work when you test them. So, so it's a step. I mean, to to use mathematics to at least check yourself and check your verbal reasoning, it's it is a use of mathematics. It is useful. 
it's uh, you know, it may not be the most powerful use, but so in this case, it seems like I was I was thinking from what Kelly said. One thing to ask mathematically, she said that these neurons are fundamentally different. The bursting of these neurons are fundamentally different. Than it's not other. bursting. It's uh, I mean the actor, the repetitive, with the firing is the firing patterns are fundamentally different. From other neurosecretory right. yeah. So what is fundamentally different? What is, is it fundamentally different or just different? Like, what does that mean to be fundamentally different? Does it mean that you just say, yeah, these are different and these are the same? When I say fundamentally different, that what I mean is I suspect that it's mechanistically different. Yeah. So if you look at what I consider a classic burster, there's a pattern of discharge that is relatively stereotypic. There's a waveform of action potentials that looks pretty similar between these um, bursters, true bursters, and the way they discharge in groups of action potentials looks pretty similar. Generator turns don't look like that. They're just firing a bunch. They're not, um, they don't have that classic kind of dopaminergic bursting pattern. Post-puberty, or, though. Prior to puberty, they do, right? Prior to puberty, they do. And they're not doing anything. They're not requiring flexibility at that point. In the yeah, moment. that's what's, that's, uh, that, um, the pubertal, uh, uh, transition recordings are probably one of the largest surprises that I've ever seen as an experimentalist because during pre-puberty, there's very little, um, GnRH release. And yet these neurons are bouncing along, um, every second. Uh, giving a, a, a very short uh, burst of action potentials, and that looks like a true burst. And as the uh, as you look at older and older animals, you see that those bursts sort of fade away and become longer periods of irregular firing until you see in uh, adults, I won't call them adults, we'll call them young adults, Periods, uh, long extended episodes of irregular firing with quiescence on either side of it. And that is exactly the opposite of what I expected to find. I expected to find the nice, easy, um, quick explanation that, well, they're largely quiescent in prepubertal animals with an occasional little bout of activity, and as they go through puberty, you get more bouts and longer bouts. And that's not what happens at all. So the first question is, why is it when these prepubertal animals are consistently discharging these, these little puffs of action potentials, why aren't they releasing GnRH? Because we know that most neuropeptide is released at the beginning of the burst, and these bursts are, you know, three, four um, milliseconds. They're long enough that you should see hormone secretion, and yet you don't. And it's when that, that quasi-bursting pattern stops and you get the irregular firing that you actually start to see hormone secretion in these animals. And that wasn't supposed to happen. So I don't know what the hell's going on there. What about the notion that the action potentials are really not all that important and that everything's being controlled by events that are happening along the axon or near the release site? Isn't this a famous point of view uh, sometimes espoused by people in your field? Well, I think that there's a population of people that believe the business under the horse are, in fact, the uh, axon terminals at the median eminence, and the rest of the neuron is just simply a device for making uh, the GnRH peptide. But the reality is um, you record that activity, 
um, in whole animals that's associated with hormone secretion way back at the level of the cell bodies. So th- something's going on back there. But you are pointing out that there's like a mismatch between the, what's happening at the axon and the pattern of electrical activity. It is not the pattern of electrical activity that I would expect to release hormone secretion. That is true. That is absolutely true. But the funny thing is, if you look at uh, multi-unit recordings from rhesus monkeys, um, during periods of hormone release, they don't show classical bursting either when you do single-unit extraction. You see a mixture of single units that fire continuously, um, units that fire and then stop and then fire some more and then stop, but none of it is classical bursting activity. It is all just repetitive action potentials. So maybe um, this notion that it has to be burst of action potentials to to release neuropeptide isn't correct. In fact, John Horn has some uh, evidence that um, it's really actually the frequency, not the pattern, that's important in releasing neuropeptide. So... On one hand, we're, we're questioning dogma, but on the other hand, we're trying to reconcile data with dogma, and I don't think you can do both of those at the same time. I think you have to decide whether you're going to simply abandon the dogma and move forward or try to make what you found fit with it. And that's where Janet can, uh, comes in on this, because I've pretty much given up trying to make uh, some of the... Uh, electrophysiological evidence that we have match the dogma, because it simply doesn't. Well, good. That sounds like a finding. Uh, uh, so Janet's job is to make it match? Or to no, Janet's, <laughs> Janet's job is, uh, is to sort of um, renew my faith that we can find an answer to this issue of purity. People have been studying purity since the earth cooled. And uh, we're actually not getting any closer, but we try. We keep asking the the same question over and over in the same way, and that's because most of us are biologists. And so you push those data in front uh, in front of someone else that sees those traces uh, with a different set of eyes. Says, "Ah, oh, it behaves like this." Something I'd never heard of or considered. So how much uh, how much variability and how in are the classes of, of firing patterns that are modulated back and forth within uh, some age range? So irregular. Is irregular just one thing, or is it change in different uh, degrees or patterns within the irregularity? Does it go in and out of irregularity? You're talking about generation cells in particular? Yeah. Yeah, they do. In fact, if anything, they are most regular and most stereotypic, um, both between animals and neurons within an animal, when they're very, very young. And as they get older, um, they become much more um, irregular. And surprisingly, just as the single units uh, in multi-unit recordings. So this notion that there's a you know, stereotypic behavior of a, an adult GnRH neuron is very misleading. They have a variety of firing patterns, and the most you can say in broad strokes is that they're active sometimes, and a lot of the time they aren't. And when they're active, how they're active is highly variable, both 
between animals and when you're recording from two animals at the same time. So that seems like a natural, I mean, this seems, I think we're, 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 we're skirting two different questions, right? So one is what the mechanisms of generating these patterns are and the question of how these patterns are related to, to, uh, to release, right? And so since they both happen, some, they both change a lot at puberty, you could ask the question, you don't understand either one. Uh, it seems like you can ask the question either way. I mean, if you understand how the firing patterns change or controlled and how that change is regulated, then you likely to find out something else that changes that's, that's, that's functionally relevant about how it releases because they both happen at the same time for a very, uh, important event. But one of the things that, um, that, um, that you had mentioned earlier that I was really interested in is, uh, and this is what one of the things that, that, uh, Mathematics is good, and it's particularly nonlinear dynamics is pretty good at is categorizing different classes of behaviors and coming up with different qualitatively different mechanisms for uh, bursting or other kinds of dynamic patterns. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was a possibility, which seems like a really very cool uh, melding of math and biology, is to do a comparative study of the mechanisms of what's happening. So actually classify uh, the dynamics of some classes of neurons across, uh, you know, across species that, uh, within a family or to look at the evolution of these dynamic patterns. It's very cool because it's very, it takes a, it's a kind of a, a part of biology that is classic goes way back to classifying things. And it's a part of mathematics that goes way back and is classifying things. And the way they match is very interesting because it, 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 both of those in some ways are descriptive, but they both point towards mechanism about what the underlying evolutionary things that you're actually changing them are about. Um, so I don't know if you, uh, I mean, if you, if you, Think about that way in terms of classification uh, of these dynamic behaviors. But uh, how do you how do you see the kind of the relationship between kind of classification and mechanism? Or I mean, is that? But when you say classification, so I was probably thinking when I, at, the, at the moment I, that I think you're referring to. I was thinking in part of so maybe you class maybe you qualitatively classify different mechanisms. But you can still ask what kinds of global bifurcations, what sequences of global bifurcations can take you between those. But that's, you know, you know, but that's sort of bridging the different mechanisms. So Yeah, so you want to see how they're related. And so yeah. the, the point is presumably they're related with evolutionarily and different mechanisms. So if you add this mechanism, then you push the system and, and give it enough flexibility, either make it a a bifurcation of something that's already, or you know, you take some other parameter that's fixed within some species and vary it across species and push it across some bifurcation and some and some. But that presumes space. a constant set of parameters, doesn't it? No, you don't you can, always see that. Well, in mathematics, you can just take this parameter that and turn it into something else, and just move it. You know, <laughs> uh, and move it. Uh, you know, you could move it continuously, even though you could introduce it, and just the evolution might introduce it and jump. Um, 
But so I don't know how how because is a mathematician you're free to compare across you know stellate cells and gene neurons yeah. take the intuition and move things across, which is one of the things that you don't do as a biologist. You do the things that you study every day. You know these whatever you study becomes you know rich and meaningful and and takes on a personality and whatever anybody else does is some vague thing that you heard about. Um, so. Is someone that's, you know, you've jumped around various systems, how, how do you pick, you know, is there, do you find a self-consistent kind of theme about what the stuff that you like? I think for me, I think it's more that I find, uh, I find places where the different kinds of problems connect, where the different questions connect, but it's not so much that I find. I think I would worry if I started finding a consistent theme. <laughs> <laughs> you would like to be irregular. <laughs> something you said for that kind of flexibility. <laughs> so I didn't ask you, I figured you didn't want me to ask you, but I wanted to ask you, like, uh, what's the prospects for enhanced mathematics? Because one of the things happens to biologists who, are, who become interested in mathematics is they start saying, uh, oh, here's my problem, and uh, we write up some differential equations, we feel like we're making a lot of progress, we make a graph and we can see the, a bifurcation diagram or something like that. And then go, okay, great. Now I would like to calculate the frequency as a function of this parameter. And they, and they usually get told, let's, you know, let's just calculate that with, by integrating. You go, well, no, actually, I wanted to see the dependence on parameters. So mm -hmm. That's why I wanted really like a closed expression for frequency so that I could see how it depends on parameters. And they go, oh, well, we just don't know how to do that. And then, and then that kind of comes up over and over and over again. So does, I mean, I'm not complaining, I, I am complaining, but I, I understand the same thing happens in biology. Students ask me every day in class questions that I don't know the answer to, and I have to say I don't know the answer to those. But, but I can, I usually say, if, if a student said, do you have a roadmap for finding the answer to that? Do you know, you know how you'll do it? I would say, well, we do care about the fact that we don't know that, and we want to we want to know that. So I'm thinking, you know, global bifurcations or like global features that you say are hard. Let's think about local things because global things are hard. Yeah, I didn't say let's think about local things because global things are hard. I said that it's, we it's, normally commonly, think about, it's commonly looked at It's commonly that way. done. Okay, so that's fine. That's good enough for me. I understand that you, that, that it's not you. It is like, it is a common, it's common for people to do that. And I'm just wondering... Does biology contribute anything to that? Do we ever get it? Does any, any does anybody say, I was able to prove this completely new theorem because of because I got some insight from biology? Because I got insight from biology, I think. Or so, so certainly things. Certainly sometimes <laughs> happens. Yeah, but certainly sometimes happens. So part of the insight is to form the question, and uh -huh. so certainly that's sometimes a step towards forming. But I think that um, that. But I do believe that sometimes one gets the insight from biology to help solve the question. And of course, the obvious thing is, I'll give an example. Um, See, we know, we, we, all the time we think about how mathematics helps biology. I just wonder, mathematics has its own job to do of it expanding its own capabilities and stuff. And mm -hmm. I wonder, uh, applied mathematicians, you know, by virtue of being embedded in some application, do they gain some uh, additional power for solving mathematical problems? 
So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, so, so it depends on the mathematician, uh-huh. but I'm going to say yes, at least personally, because, I mean, in some sense, I don't think I could do math biology if I didn't have that, if I didn't feel like I had that experience. I mean, well, I don't want to say what would be the point. I mean, the biology is interesting, but I don't think, I don't think I could do it just, just the biology. I, I don't think that would, I don't think that would feel. And I'm the same way about math. I can't do math for its own sake. Well, maybe a little bit, but usually it has to have some impact. But that is a path that, I mean, there's, you know, there's a significant subset of math biologists who, who once they get hold of an interesting math problem, do also work on the math problem to develop the mathematical theory. That's something that I'm doing and that you know, others are doing as well. Well, thanks for being with us, Janet Best, and this is the Neuroscientist Talk Shop. I would like to study GNRH neurons in C squared. Kidding. They're about as big as your thumb. Uh, the uh. creature is about as big as your thumb. You can scrape them off the bottom of a boat. Um, they have very, very small GNRH neurons. And they have practically no other existing brain at all. Because they've destroyed it. They've, yeah, they used to. They, they ate it. Hmm? They ate it. What? They ate their brain. They did? Really? I'm not watching too many they B movies. <laughs> <laughs> when, they're swim, when, they're, when they are larvae, they drew the or whatever they are, they swim. And when they swim, they have a nervous system. And then when they attach themselves to the bottom of a boat or a rock or something, they digest their nervous system. I had no idea. Well, anymore. they still have GNRH neurons. They leave those there. It's still famous story appropriate. Yeah. all the time by Rudolf, by Rudolf yeah. Lindenhouse, and it's the beginning of his book, Eye of the Vortex. vortex yeah. oh, it's a wonderful story. Really, they eat their brains, but they leave their reproductive neurons there. So Isn't that cool? You've got to leave something. If you're going to leave just some kind of neuron. Right, brains receive DNA. Yeah. But they're, they're, those neurons are so teeny. Their they're generation neurons are like three microns. Whoa.